Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Jean-Baptiste Jouffre. Jean-Baptiste is a postdoctoral researcher exploring what the Anthropocene means for the ocean. He works at the Stockholm Resilience Center. Hi Jean-Baptiste, welcome. Hi Sonia, thank you for having me. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you're working on? I used to be a PhD student until very recently. So I graduated in January 2020 after five years of work trying to understand what is the new reality of the ocean. So we often refer to the Anthropocene as this new epoch where we live in, where humans have become a dominant force of planetary change. I think the value of the Anthropocene is to provide a way to look at things today, like an analytical framework. And so that's what I do in the context of the ocean. So give us an overview of the issues and the state of the ocean today. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> it's, it's more relevant than ever because the United Nations just declared the beginning of what is called the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. So it starts in 2021, go up to 2030, and it's a decade to promote research on the ocean. We know relatively little about the ocean. You often hear that we know more about the moon, the surface of the moon and Mars than we do actually about the seabed and the bottom of the ocean. It's true with some regard. So there is a lot to describe. Life has evolved uh, for three times longer than on land in the ocean. There is up to 90% of marine species yet to be described. And of the 34 phyla of animal life, 33 are found in the ocean and only 13 on land or 12. That's to show the extent of unknown about the ocean. And while there is all this potential for discovery and research, and we can talk about it later because I think a lot of it is very relevant in the context of, of pandemics as well and new medicines or new drugs, what they call drugs from the deep, there's all this potential. There's also an unprecedented amount of pressure human pressure on the ocean, like local pressure that will come from a range of activities, but also global ones, and not least climate change. So not only is the ocean a reservoir of future discovery, but it's also a life support system. So the air we breathe comes from the ocean, it absorbs the extra heat, and it regulates the climate. All the currents and the wind patterns and the climate in general depends on the ocean. So if something bad happens to the ocean, something bad will happen to the climate. It's very interconnected. Is this regulation at risk? Well, there are a lot of problems with climate change and the ocean. I mean, one iconic example are coral reefs uh, that you hear a lot about. So coral reefs, they thrive within a certain range of temperature. So if the water becomes too warm, the zooxanthella, which are the small algae that lives in the corals and that produce food, like feed the corals by day, and while the corals feed them by night, it's what we call like a symbiose. Those zooxanthella, if it gets too warm, they leave. And that's what's referred to as a bleaching event. And the corals lose its color, becomes white, and it can survive for a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks. But if it goes for too long, then those zooxanthella never come back, and then it's too late, and your coral die. And we've seen in the past what's referred to as mass bleaching event, a really big one in 98, where a lot of corals died worldwide. And sadly, we see them becoming more and more frequent and more and more intense. So over the last five years, there's been at least three mass bleaching events. And, and the iconic one is the Great Barrier Reef that is hit over and over almost every year now with uh, mass bleaching events. 
So that's a direct result of seawater temperature increasing. Another problem is ocean acidification. So because it absorbs so much of the excess carbon, it becomes more acidic, and that also will have consequences. That being said, in the short term, seawater temperature is, is the biggest issue. Right now, any ice you have in the Arctic will send back a lot of the heat back to the atmosphere. And if you lose that ice, then it's the ocean, which is darker, and the water that's going to absorb much more of it and then gets warmer. But as this ice melts, that means there's nothing to send it back. That means that the ocean is absorbing more and more of the heat. And so it's a reinforcing loop where because you have less and less ice, you have more and more of the heat that is absorbed in the water. Hence, the water gets warmer and warmer, which reinforce the melting of the ice and so on. And we have a lot of those cascading effects. The seawater temperature it also redistributes the, the range of a lot of species, so fish are moving because water is getting warmer somewhere, so the fish population are moving somewhere else, which really links to issues of quotas and sometimes geopolitical conflict between nations because quotas were set based on an assessment of a fish population being in a certain place, and suddenly that fish population has moved somewhere else because of climate change. Yet another impact with direct consequences on human population and urban center is the sea level rise. You also hear a lot about that. Sea level are rising and there are estimates that you know, within decades a lot of the coastal cities, and, and we are a lot as a human species aggregated in coastal space, 12 mega cities uh, will be at risk. And that links back to the insurance sector because there is an awareness of all those risks, of this growing landscape of risk for the financial sector as well, realizing that things are very different now because of climate change. So those are only a few examples of what climate change means for the ocean. As a researcher, how are you working? You're working with many stakeholders. Sustainability science, which is what I've dived into, in a way ought to be interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary is when you collaborate across academic disciplines. Transdisciplinary is when you collaborate beyond academia, so you engage with societal actors. So an example of that would be your work in the seafood industry, where we try to understand who were the big companies involved in the seafood industry. Once we have identified them and realized how much they fish, where, and, and their influence on policymaking, we try to engage with them, engage in a dialogue and so forth. The last four years now, we've been working with 10 of the world's largest seafood companies in trying to see how we can improve uh, the seafood industry, how we can improve their practices. And those 10 companies, because they are so big, have themselves more than 1,000 subsidiaries. So the idea is that by targeting a few very big actors in the industry, you actually can have a cascading effect throughout all their supply chain and subsidiaries. So that would be an example. So as a researcher, you can take many different caps. The one I took so far is one of a transdisciplinary scientist trying to capitalize on the expertise of other people through collaboration and engage with society to have an impact. Not just fundamental research, which is much needed, but research solution-driven. Do you think things are moving forward in the business arena and the political arena? Yeah, I think things are moving at an unprecedented pace. And if we take the business case, for instance, somehow the business doesn't need scientists to tell them that climate change is a reality. 
I mean, it will depend which business you talk to. But in the seafood industry, once again, which is where I have the most experience working with large transnational corporation, it was striking the first time we, we met with the CEOs of those companies and, and kind of laid off the state-of-the-art science of where we stand. And, and they welcomed it, but they were very aware of it. And as a matter of fact, one of, uh, one of the companies involved in, in salmon farming was telling us, well, we've seen the effect of climate change for the last 10 years because we have to move our farms along the coast because the, the water is getting warmer. So I think a lot of businesses know very well what's going on. They also know the risk, whether it's financial risk. It's like how ecological risk might translate into financial risk. And I think that's something we, we see also a growing awareness within the financial sector because there starting to lose money insurances among other if you look at california and the fires in california these recent years or australia last winter there are a lot of capital and, and money lost because of extreme events the frequency and the intensity of them so there is a growing awareness and there is also because of civil society pressure like being sustainable is starting to become the norm rather than the exception so you ought to be sustainable and you're going to become less and less attractive as a company even to hire people if you're not sustainable so what we're trying to push for is um, there's been a lot of talk about corporate social responsibility for the last 20-30 years and that hasn't really worked, to be fair. I mean, relatively speaking, it's one could argue it's been a, it's been a failure because it hasn't been scaled up to the urgency of of the problem. So shifting the narrative maybe from corporate social responsibility, like where responsibility doesn't entail necessarily fixing the problems, but just telling you what are the problems, to corporate biosphere stewardship. It's still corporation. Biosphere is the notion that. The economy is embedded into the society and the society is embedded into the biosphere. And they are really intertwined. They're embedded in each other. It's not like three diagrams that interact. It's three diagrams that are within each other. And the basis of it being the biosphere. So if you don't have a functioning biosphere, then you won't have a functioning society. And if you don't have a functioning society, you won't have a functioning economy. So it's this idea of, of a hierarchy somehow where really the biosphere is fundamental for it. That's the biosphere. And then the stewardship it can be seen as a buzzword, but it's really the idea of a leadership in best practice that goes beyond you know, just maybe reducing your own operation or cleaning your own supply chain. It's, it's some kind of aspirational leadership and responsibility when it comes to being a steward of the planet. So taking responsibility for yourself, but also as an example for the others. And we're seeing an appetite in the private sector to be perceived as such. And certainly in the context of the ocean, if we bring back the ocean there, because there is this overwhelming narrative of the blue economy, seeing the ocean as the next economic frontier. Like I said earlier, the ocean is two-thirds of the Earth's surface. It's on average four kilometer deep. And what we're seeing over the last years is an unprecedented acceleration, something we here uh, described as the blue acceleration, which describes the trajectory of human expansion into the ocean. It's an exponential growth of a range of activities, commercial activities in the ocean. Right now, the largest ocean-based industry is the offshore oil and gas, by far. But you have a rapid increase of the offshore renewable energy, so wind farm, for instance, but also a lot of potential with wave power or like tidal using tides to create energy. Of course, seafood, billions of people worldwide depend on fish. 
and seafood for their livelihood or for their protein intake. You have increasingly minerals. We want to go and mine the ocean. So right now the sand and gravel are the most mined minerals in the ocean. We need a lot for construction. But there is a growing interest in deep sea minerals, which would be those rare earth that paradoxically we need for green technology and, and where we could find a big quantities of those rare earth metals or minerals are in the deep sea. Now, when you look at mining on land and the impact of it, you can imagine what it would look like at the bottom of the ocean where there are extreme conditions of pressure, temperature, salinity that has made life evolve in a very specific way. And that's a segue to another claim on the ocean, which is marine genetic resources. I said earlier we know very little about the ocean, but we're certain that there is a tremendous potential for medicines or biodiscovery. The challenge between, for instance, deep-sea mining on hydrothermal vents, which are those unique ecosystems uh, very deep in the abyss but still have life, like thriving with life because of the hot water coming uh, from the bottom of the ocean, is that if you start mining those, you're going to wipe out any potential discovery that we could do. And so a lot of scientists are calling for exploration before exploitation to preserve what we don't know about yet. And there are examples, if, if we bring back to COVID-19, in the context of today, the sole antiviral, Remdesivir, that has been accepted uh, across multiple jurisdictions today, comes from natural product compounds that originally were found in, in the 50s from a marine sponge, right? So there is this potential. But that's just, just one out of many claims on the ocean. I'm not going to list all of them, but you could think of tourism. It's a really big industry in the ocean as well. Desalination, increasingly using seawater to desalinate, to like supply fresh water, as again, as a result of climate change, fresh water may become scarce in many places of the world. Qatar, for instance, it's 90% of its drinking water that comes from desalination. There is this shipping industry, like 80% of global trade by volume, 70% by value is carried by, by vessels on the sea. Telecommunication cable, uh, 99% of international telecommunication are carried by more than 1.4 million submarine cables. So they are cables laid down all over the ocean to be able to communicate. If you Skype with someone just from Sweden to France, that will go under the sea, won't go through satellite. The only continent that's not linked, it's Antarctica. And of course, you can't have a submarine cable when you apply into deep sea mining, or you can't have a submarine cables when you're doing like a bottom trolling, which is a type of fishing where you like troll the, the bottom of the sea because then you would catch the cable. So you're going to have all those interactions, trade-off and potential conflict of multiple users of the ocean. Exactly. And when I'm listening to you, a part of me is really scared that we replicate what we've done mm. wrong on Earth in the sea. We rely on the ocean to uh, regulate our ecosystem. So that requires international governance, and we don't have that at the moment. It's like the far west. The ocean is also a place far from the eyes where you can see a lot of bad practices happening, nobody knowing. You're right to point that out. There is something very unique with the ocean compared to land. Two-thirds of the ocean lie beyond national jurisdiction. We call it the high sea. So beyond your exclusive economic zone, the EEZ, like the 200 nautical miles from coast, it becomes these international waters referred to as the high seas. And the same apply to the seabed. 
and the seabed is called the area with a capital A, and that's the part of the seabed that is beyond the EZ, so beyond the 200 nautical miles. And according to the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOSED, that was signed in, in 1982, the area, so the part of the seabed within international water, if that makes sense, or beyond national jurisdiction, is considered the common heritage of humankind. So that means that any activity that takes place there should benefit everyone. There should be some kind of access and benefit-sharing mechanisms. When it comes to the high seas, it hasn't been designated as such, and there is a lot of talk about whether fishing should happen in the high seas or not, because right now it's really a handful of countries that have what we call a distant water fleet, which is a fishing fleet able to go really far in the ocean and harvest fish there. The good news is there are negotiations. As we speak, more or less, they were supposed to take place a, a lot during 2020. That once was dubbed the super year for the ocean. That has been derailed for obvious reason. But they are trying to keep a momentum on it. And so they are, they are ongoing negotiation for a treaty on the high seas to regulate activities on the high seas. One of the pillars of it being the marine genetic resources that we talked a little bit about. How can we access marine genetic resources and make sure everyone benefits from it and not just the highly industrialized country or in some cases company that can afford it. So to answer your question, it's like, yes, this is quite unique, uh, the situation of the ocean, because of that international governance that's required. There's a convention that's been the, the baseline for regulating activities at sea so far. What you're seeing somehow is a mismatch between the rate of change in our human use of the ocean and the slow pace of governance or agreement, like if ever we get that international agreement, it's, it's not going to be before several years. And then to implement it or to ratify it by all the countries will take even longer. And that's where you need to look at other ways to, to speed up the process or to contribute. And it's not to say that they are exclusive or, or competing. I think they're really complementary and we need all hands on deck somehow to, to address the challenges of the ocean. And that's where one can turn towards the private sector. So who are the who are the companies that actually benefit from the ocean today? Who are the big fishing companies? Who are the offshore oil and gas? Who are the big corporations that benefit from the ocean? And can they do things better? So that would be the private sector. And then you can think of what is financing those companies. Because if I want to go out there in the ocean, if I want to start deep sea mining the abyss, I'm going to need capital. I'm going to need investment. And same if I'm a fishing company, there's a lot of talk on subsidies because a lot of the unsustainable fishing going on is subsidized by nation. If state stopped subsidizing, it wouldn't just be profitable. So it would be a very strong incentive. So can we find incentives in the financial sector to redirect capital towards better practices? And I think that's where finance has a really big role uh, to play in incentivizing better practices. And that links somehow to the tax haven, because right now we have a global economy that rely extensively on those offshore jurisdiction, where either the regulation or the ability to enforce a regulation is non-existent. And, and that creates a lot of loopholes for, for fishing vessels, for instance, once again, to have different flags and uh, what's called flag of convenience or flag of non-compliance where you basically won't be held accountable 
uh, or won't be binded to some practices or some regulation, safety. And it's both environmental but also social. There's a lot of cases of, of forced labor in the seafood industry, which are absolutely horrific. So it's all part of a big system. It's different industries racing for the ocean, like a new gold rush, you could say. But it's also about the financial sector uh, fueling that race. And of course, it's about the governance, like who's governing that blue economy. So a lot of questions, and I certainly don't have all the answers yet. Because if we go back to something maybe simpler, fishing, there are a lot of campaigns that are horrific. No, of course, fishing, lots of problems from habitat destruction to unsustainable practices to uh, social issues, as I mentioned, with, with forced labor, with illegal fishing as well. Globally, 30% of the large industrial fisheries are overexploited. 60% are exploited to their full capacity. And then only 10% more or less have margin to be exploited more. And those numbers are often lumped together, saying, well, 90% of the world fisheries are either overexploited or fully exploited. So you yeah, hear that's what that I a had lot. in mind. Mm. Exactly. As a consumer, what do mm. you think we should do regarding fish consumption? <sighs> In an ideal world, I would argue that the consumer wouldn't have to choose. The choice would be made a priori by the retailer or throughout the supply chain. So when I go to the supermarket, it's not up to me to choose between the unsustainable tuna can or the sustainable one, whatever sustainable means in that case. That's also up for discussion. But it would only be sustainable. And I think that, that would be perfect. Now, it's not, we're not there yet. And there are, of course, like price incentives, which are wrong right now. It's often the, uh, the sustainability product has a cost that uh, many people can't afford. And then you never know, right? There's a lot of, um, of debate about those certification process. Like the, the obvious pathway for a consumer is certification. So go for products that have been certified. And that's really good, but it's not enough. So as a consumer, I would say... Your most powerful weapon is probably your vote. It's to vote for a leadership, for a political leadership that has the will to change and to do things differently. Now, I don't know if you find those politicians today <laughs> anywhere, but I think public pressure and protest, like we've seen the, the movement with Greta Thunberg, for instance, really impressive capacity to gather people and create a momentum that has repercussion on the political sphere. That's also a bit of a reflection for where we want to go as a society, right? Like a lot of people are saying, well, COVID-19 is, is nothing compared to what's coming up with climate change. You see those cartoons where COVID-19 is, is maybe a very tiny wave and then you have a tsunami coming, which is titled climate change. And so there are heartening examples throughout the COVID-19 crisis of collaboration, of international cooperation, of open access, of research, of sharing of global data. And I think those are the examples we should hang to when it comes to how to tackle what's to come, because there will be more crisis and climate change being an unfolding one uh, as we speak. And so can we find, can we learn lessons from how we reacted to, to the global pandemic and apply it to the challenge of climate change? And I would say that civil society pressure on politician, on the private sector as a consumer, on the financial sector. Talk to your bank. Do you want your money to be invested in certain type of, of companies or practices? That's what you can do. You can do a lot as a citizen.
certainly. Okay, but it's interesting because I don't hear we're just eating too much fish. The, there is not enough fish in the sea for 10 billion people. And that's what I heard before from NGOs. And I, I was really curious if you would say that. For you, it's not the priority to reduce our uh, fish consumption. Well, to reduce our consumption of anything is the priority, especially if both of us right now talk from Stockholm. Why I didn't bring it up necessarily is because I think it's extremely context-dependent. You cannot go to Eastern Africa and tell them stop eating fish because that will be 20% of their daily protein intake that comes from the sea. So I think it's very much like the debate on meat. And a couple of months ago, when a big report was launched that the Eat Lancet Commission, Stockholm Resident Center, was, was part of it, Uh, about uh, sustainable diet. To me, the best headline that captured the report was one by the New York Times, I think, that read, more green for all, less meat for some. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really neat because the report was not about, oh, we just need to stop eating meat. That's unrealistic. People need to eat meat sometimes. But it's really about being aware of each other needs and consumerism. So more greens for all, that's taken for granted, less meat for some. Because if you look at meat consumption, it, it's going to be countries like the United States of America, it's going to be countries like a lot of countries in Europe that really disproportionately overeat meat. And I think a little bit the same can be said when it comes to the seafood. You could think along those lines in terms of it's not necessarily about stopping eating fish from one day to another completely, but it's more maybe reducing the amount of fish you eat if you can afford it, and I think people like you and me certainly can, or selecting your species more in line with what's sustainable. Do you want to, to eat bluefin tuna every day at breakfast? That would not be sustainable. But eating certain fish cut with certain gear types or within quotas, I think this is perfectly fine. Less but better quality, better selection. Absolutely. So that's still your message. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to uh, the context that we're in now and the corona crisis, do you think that's a risk or an opportunity? Both. If you look back at the literature, fundamental theory of resilience, which is what is called the adaptive cycle, where it's a figure eight, where you go through different phases, and what crises allow is a window of opportunity for the system to reorganize. So if you look at that theory, you can, you can see the COVID-19 crisis as a unique opportunity to really reorganize our society and do things different. And I think that's a lot of the narrative out there when you hear about the world after COVID-19 or like, let's reinvent ourselves or business will never be the same as before. And that's great because there is, um, there is a reality in there. We really have the possibility and the opportunity <clears throat> to reorganize ourselves. If anything, I think, um, you know, this whole notion of bailing out industries that have collapsed. So the, the possibility for governments to bail out those industries, binding them to sustainability condition would be extremely promising. That, that was the yes. <laughs> yes, there is an opportunity. The risk aspect is that I think some of the early signals we've seen, but it's only, only it's very recent, right? It's only a couple of months. But what we're seeing so far might not be that encouraging. Uh, what we're seeing so far is the oil price going down dramatically, which means that plastic has never been that cheap. So any kind of alternative to plastic that people were working on, be it seaweed or other 
aspect cannot compete with the price of plastic right now. And as a matter of fact, some countries are going backwards when it comes to the regulation that had been put for like banning single-use plastic item and now allowing it again. You also hear a lot of the a lot of industries saying, "Oh, but if we want to start over the economy, you know, you have to give us more time with those regulation." That was big in France with the uh, the car industry that heavily lobbied just a few weeks after the, we were still in lockdown in in France that the the car industry was lobbying to postpone the 2020 deadline for like CO2 emission in in individual cars. So you have those signals. The COP26 has been postponed by one year as well. So to be fair, I have mixed feelings. And I think it's, I mean, no one can really say how it's going to unfold. Looking at past crisis in modern history, it's not that encouraging. If you go just 12 years ago to the financial crisis, one could have argued that was a crisis that would reinvent the financial sector. And it didn't happen. So let's hope it's different this time. A quick question on plastic. We haven't mentioned that. It's a big issue for the ocean. Do you have a few facts and figures to share on that? It's a big issue. It's also a very mediatic one. People can identify to it because we use plastic for everything and we throw plastic daily. And if you go scuba diving or snorkeling, you pretty much are guaranteed to see plastic now in the ocean. So it's a massive issue. By all means, it's not the only one in the ocean. Interestingly, it's one where the actual ocean-based industries are the less responsible for, because most of the plastic ending up in the ocean comes from land and is carried out by rivers. Mm. And so I think when it comes to governance, governance of plastic really is at the state level on, on land and trying to have better infrastructure in place to prevent plastic mm. going on in the sea or to simply prevent plastic to being created in the first hand, right? There's this overwhelming rhetoric of recycling. Recycling might not be the solution because we, we see it. The, the numbers don't add up. So I think alternatives to plastic, but there again, they have a cost. One thing that uh, I can't forget is a video I saw where you see the seventh continent of plastic. It means that there is the equivalent of six times the surface of France sitting in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. In the middle of the Pacific, yeah. It's, it's been used as a, figuratively speaking, like a continent of plastic. But it's more perverse than that because you actually don't see it. Macroplastic, so big pieces of plastic, are really the, the minority of plastics out there in the ocean. What you have is microplastic, which are really tiny particles, and nanoparticles, which are even tinier, get into the food web, get into the whole ecosystem. You were telling ocean singular rather than yes. plural. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, I like to use the singular. It was the UNESCO tagline a couple of years back saying one planet, one ocean. And because as a matter of fact, biophysically, there is only one ocean. It's connected, right? The best way to look at it is to project a world map based on the Spielhaus projections. And it's an extremely powerful visualization. I encourage everyone to Google it and I will, I will show put it, it on to the you. Website then. Yeah, that would be perfect because you will, you will get the sense of one, there is only one ocean and it's all interconnected. And two, it's not infinite. Like you, you, you can think of the ocean as vast, but it's not limitless. And when you see it as one single body of water, 
bounded by the land masses, you realize that anything that's happening on land eventually go into the ocean, more or less, and any activity happening in the ocean, be it offshore oil and gas, fishing, cables, mining, desalination, renewable energy, shipping, tourism, all those are taking a piece of this finite space of ocean, which I think reinforced to me the value of, of doing it sustainably and realizing, okay, this is what we have to deal with. There is no, there's no planet B and there's no ocean B. It's the one ocean that we need to care of. That makes me think of the overview effect. Do you know that? No, I don't. It's a consciousness that uh, astronauts get when they go in the, in the space. They stop looking at their country or their mm -hmm. continent. They start looking at the Earth as a whole. And when they see this blue little planet in a vast immensity of black emptiness... They feel that it's limited. Exactly, and it's I think. Fragile. I exactly, I, yeah. I think it's it's very similar. It's like it's it's an awareness of how finite and vulnerable our ecosystem is. I mean, it's quite timely with now the the race to the space as well, right? With flights in space and this. As much as this is very exciting and very inspiring, I think you could argue that a lot is yet to be discovered in the ocean. Mm. And, and preserved here on Earth before we, we go establish the base on the moon. Before we close this interview, I um, wanted to ask you, we are both French in Sweden, and, and Sweden has a great reputation on sustainability. Where do you see this country ahead? And where do you feel that uh, still progress to be made? Oh, there is surely is progress to be made, like everywhere else. It's all relative. I was driven to Sweden because of this reputation in environmental science and and so that has delivered and and i think that delivers beautifully now you can also always poke holes and and find limits or contradiction even in how the society function uh, one thing that sweden interestingly has been doing over the recent years is trying to take some kind of leadership on the political sphere So Isabella Levin, who's the actual um, minister of the environment, has been really vocal and very active in engaging in, in science-based targets and, and bringing issue up front. And I think that's, that's one thing we need. We need a political will. We need a political force. Typically what's eroding right now in the United States, for instance, where, where they are withdrawing from any kind of leadership when it comes to environmental issues. Specifically to the ocean, I think Norway is another example that really pushed forward an agenda of conservation and, and leadership on this notion of a blue economy. And so I think there is a role for Sweden there too, not to let the neighbor go too much ahead, but to actually uh, put their own stamp on it and, and take an active leadership in it. My last question, if you want to share a quote. It is by Jane Lubchenko, an American professor. She used to be the head of NOAA under the Obama administration. Then she became science advisor to President Obama. What And is NOAA? It's the equivalent of NASA, but for okay. the oceans. It's the federal agency, American federal agency for the ocean. She had this powerful quote saying, the ocean is not too big to fail, nor too big to fix. It's too big to ignore, which I think summarizes really well the state of how science should approach the ocean today. A book that you recommend? Kings of the Yukon by Adam Weymouth, who's an anthropologist who spent several months paddling down the Yukon River through uh, first Canada and then Alaska. 
and and interviewing people alongside the the river and it's it really for me embodies what a social ecological system is because the book the premise of the book is understanding the salmon cycle um but it goes far more in terms of understanding the people who depend on this salmon culturally um but also economically so it's a wonderful journey through the wilderness of um, Yukon and Alaska, uh, discovering First Nation there who rely on salmon and, and how fishery management has failed in some cases to, to work with that. Kings of the Yukon. It closed nicely exactly. because you're kind of an explorer yourself. In one way. <laughs> What have been your best exploration? Well, as a matter of fact, I was in Yukon a few months ago. Uh, so after I graduated, I went hiking for three weeks uh, with my brother in Yukon, which had always been a dream. That's how uh, the book was offered to me uh, at this occasion. I've been in many places. I like the north and the subarctic. I've been several times in the north of Norway or north of Sweden. I find the landscapes uh, beautiful. Yeah, well, wilderness in general, I think, is what I'm trying and to And you live, from. like, in complete autonomy? Yes. Produce your own energy? You have solar panel with you? So we usually carry our own food, carry our tent, and just walk. Have you ever felt in danger? Certainly. A couple of years ago, we ran out of water in Utah Desert, and that's, that's not a place you want to run out of water. We thought we would rely specifically on the river, and when we reached the river, it was just mud, like pure mud, flowing mud. Uh, so nothing drinkable. So that was a challenge. Had a kidney stone in the next 48 hours and emergency in the hospital. We were in the blizzard. That was very intimidating as well. Uh, yeah, I could go on and on. Wow. Uh, but it's part of, I think it is part of the experience as well. It's to realize how vulnerable uh, one is. And how did you get out of your misery? <laughs> we waited for the wind to get down. Uh, and the desert specifically, we went back, uh, we walked back to the car and eventually made it back to, to civilization and got some water there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, it's nice. Thank you very much for listening. If you like this conversation, please take the time to say it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or any other platform. And please leave a comment. That's the best way to help me make it more visible. You can also share this episode on the social media. À bientôt